G'day all, welcome to the Highly Adequate Podcast. My name is Desi, I'm a content developer and podcast host. This podcast is part of a series where I interview people in cyber and we get to understand their pathways to where they are today. If you're interested in learning more, jump onto my Discord server. You can grab an invite for that from my website, highlyadequate.com. But for now, we have Joe joining us. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Desi. Joe's my old boss and good friend, and I have said before that she's better at making memes than me, but only in quality, not quantity. We have a go at each other all the time, like in a, a recent message thread that we're both part of. <laughs> we only do that when there's other people to... And also, not not that I'm competitive or anything, but my jokes got more likes than yours <laughs> I didn't even look at that, so now I just feel really sad about it. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. I'll I'll get over that eventually. It's going to cut deep. So first up, same question I ask everyone. What is a normal day like for you at your job? So this actually, I think, was a question that I found really difficult to answer previously. Because in a, in a conversation I had with one of my team members recently where we were talking about career progression and, you know, would you like my job? And he turned to me and said, well, I don't be, mean to be rude, but what do you actually do all day? <laughs> make too many memes, that's probably it. Well, yes, but the amount of memes I make is normally directly correlating to the amount of stress and pressure I'm under. For, for example, this week, I don't know if you've ever used the tool Miro. It's like a a whiteboarding post yeah, like brain, brainstorming and that yeah well, yeah this this week i made a psyduck picture out of 1037 post-it notes <laughs> 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 and then posted it to our slack with the caption tell me you're not stressed tell me you're stressed without telling me you're not stressed so you could probably actually make that or, or even just have the mirror board and put it in an art gallery and it'd be contemporary art. I should make it into some kind of NFT, right? Yes, and sell it. Make the money. All right, you've got... No, it's Psyduck NFT. (laughs) Between now and when this episode releases, you've got time to make that NFT yours. Oh, ain't nobody got time for that, Desi. (laughs) Is is that the next one you're making? I'm sure someone's already done that, right? (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, this is the stupidest digression to any of the questions, or at least it's the stupidest one we've had in this episode so far. (laughs) (laughs) And we're right at the beginning, everyone. Oh, my goodness. Welcome to the podcast between Joe and Desi. I I hope you've got three hours spare to finish off this recording. So anyway, yes, normal work day. Normally, I start the day having a catch up with my team. Depending on the day, we might have a, a stand up or a sprint planning meeting. Even if we don't have a scheduled meeting, we have a a Slack thread where we all post what we're working on the day. So I check to see if anyone's got any blockers, if anyone needs any help from me with anything. And then I also use that to write my to-do list for the day too, because then I find it's a great way for me to remind myself what I'm meant to be doing. As I'm in a senior role, I do have more meetings than I'd like. For the meetings that I organize and am in control of I like to try and put them all on the same day back to back because I found that's a much better way to not lose as much productivity during the rest of the time you know you have a half an hour meeting and then you've got an hour free and then you've got another half an hour meeting you don't get anything done in the middle can't even you know crank out too many dank memes in that time I try to avoid the days where I have a mix of both now it's either big meeting day or thinking and doing day So depending on what 
kind of day it is. That it could be either, depending on any typical day. In our team, so I lead the cyber defense team. So I'm the third escalation point for any ultra spicy alerts that we have coming in, or for those kind of weird outlying situations that are so rare that the team doesn't know what we should do with it or who we should contact. And when we do have an investigation or an incident, I get to be the technical lead. So that's when I get to get my hands dirty and start looking through logs at the same time, trying to keep the rest of the business calm. It's not so much the duck paddling really fast underwater. It's more, you know, there's the iceberg that's calm on top of the water. And then there's all the parts of the iceberg you can't see under the water, except my iceberg is generally on fire and collapsing. <laughs> so, but it's fine because I walk in the room with the ELT and it, everything's under control. And then because I do run the SecOps function, I have to do a fair amount of planning for major projects we have to work on but we're not instant responding so for example last year we implemented a SOAR platform so for your listeners who hate acronyms security operations automation and response platform which was a fantastic way for us to give more time back to our SOC analysts by automating the noisiest or most time consuming alerts so yeah there's not touch wood as I'm as I'm internal rather than consulting now, there's not too many major incidents happening. And so we get a lot of time to work on fun. Well, I think they're fun projects, but that's because I get to choose them. So <laughs> the rest of the team might not think they're so fun. I appreciate the fact that you like stick all your meetings into one day because I find the same thing. Like when you've got that break, that half an hour, hour break. It always takes time, for me at least, to spin up into a task. And I've moved now to, like, it's usually meant to be company-wide, like, no no meetings on Fridays, which is hard for an international company because my Friday is someone else's Thursday and they love to try and put meetings on my, my Fridays because it's still their Thursday. And I'm like, no, I do not want to turn up to a meeting at 10 a.m. on a Friday. So, yeah, Fridays are probably, like, some of my most productive days because I just have uninterrupted like I'm working on customers or I'm like working on a project or whatever. And it's, you get that like six hours, like runway to just work, which is yeah, really good. But I've taken that one step further, which is quite controversial at my workplace, given the kind of culture we have. And on Fridays, not only do I have no meetings, so it's blocked out in my calendar. It's also no Slack day for me. Yeah. That's a good idea. Don't expect to see me on Slack because well, especially with the new updates. It's so distracting the whole time. Unfortunately, this has been slightly derailed recently because someone decided to say that Fridays on Slack was mean Fridays for the security team. And, you know, I couldn't let that go without my input. So... <laughs> what, are, what are they thinking? That doesn't even rhyme. It should be mean Mondays. Get everyone into the spirit. It's funny, right? Because it's all about, yes, we all love memes and let's make them... But at the same time, it completely takes our productivity on a Friday morning because we're all too busy laughing or making memes. Or yeah, I, I should show you some of the memes that we created this week. After so, one of my one of my team this week resigned because he's going on a research vessel to the Antarctic, and so we have all these memes this week about him going to slap penguins. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's doing. The penguins are going to try and mess with his satellite dishes and he's just going to go and smack those penguins. 
I do want to see that. That's that's hilarious. Has someone done the like Batman slapping Robin, but instead of Robin, it's a penguin? No, we didn't. Oh, that's like the most obvious one. It was the series of the distracted boyfriend that was my favorite this time. I'm keen to see some of these memes for sure. I'll let you see them after we're done recording. Before it's not even Friday, but before we let memes derail us, let's let's get back into some of the questions. <laughs> we were always going to let memes derail us. <laughs> we're ten minutes in and we've done one question. This is going well. This is this is a record for us. This is so fast. <laughs> so next question is we want to go back to the job that you had before you considered that you got yourself into cyber. So it's gonna be super interesting for the listeners because I know your story and you've kind of always been in that that fringe space like you were in it before cyber was an industry it was a long time ago so i've been working now in cyber or some flavor of what we would call cyber now for over 18 years if we go back even further than that before i knew what i wanted to do it was i was at college which in the uk is our version of year 11 and 12 so the the two years that you spend after high school before you can go to university that's what I was doing and I got to go on a charity trip to India Um, and it was sponsored by British Airways and we had to do all the you know empowering the leaders of tomorrow things and we had to do environmental product projects in the UK and then we spent three weeks in India in the northwest corner in a place called the Ranakach, which is a salt desert so for the majority of the year it's actually I could be wrong I'd have to check my geography because geography is not my strong point but you, you could be completely lying to me at this point I but they were the penguins and they were going after the satellite di- dishes in the <laughs> <laughs> you had to go slap them all yeah that's that's what got me into saliva for a at least some of the year, this whole desert is underwater. The sea comes in kind of thing. You've got these nomadic people that live on the desert and then when the rains come, they walk off the desert. It's a, it's a very, very harsh environment to live in. But one day we were there and we were, we were trekking through the desert one morning to get to our camp and it took us about two and a half hours in blazing hot sunshine I say it was blazing hot, but back then I only knew European sunshine. So let's face it, it was probably 23 degrees. There were all these really nasty, spiky bushes that were kind of in the sand and just under the sand. And I was wearing, if you would believe it, my school hockey boots. Like the, they're like studded boots, like soccer, but they're rubber. Because, you know, you're not allowed to stomp on people in hockey or something in the UK. I don't know. But these spikes were so long, they were going through my hockey boots and into my feet. So I I was not having a fun time. And the group of us that were there, you know, 17, 18 year olds were all talking about, you know, all right, let's imagine you could be anywhere doing anything. What would you want right now? If like a genie came out of a bottle and said, what would you want? And the first person said, oh, I would really like an ice cold Coke. In fact, let's get a crate of ice cold Coke because we're all so hot and thirsty. And the next person was like, oh, I really want a roast dinner with all the trimmings. Because by this point, we were all kind of sick of eating curry and chilies. They even put chilies in my jacket potato one day. 
having a, a roast dinner with all the trimmings is like to me is just such a British thing to say. It is quintessentially British. Yeah, it's our national comfort food, I reckon. And then it came to me and I said, well, if we've got food and drink sorted, I think I'd like a computer with an internet connection so I could see what was going on with the world. And everyone just kind of stopped and looked at me. <laughs> it's not an, an unusual thing to happen necessarily. But at that point I thought, oh, maybe maybe it should be computer science I study at, at uni. And so that, that was kind of the moment that made me go. I, I previously couldn't decide between, you know, I was a physical sciences person, like physics, maths, chemistry, and IT. And I didn't know which one of those I wanted to choose for uni. And it was that moment when I missed the internet in the middle of the Indian desert that made me think I would want to do computer science. That's where it started, although it wasn't a job. At the time, I was working in a in a pharmacy as a chemist's assistant. That's what kicked it all off. Yep. Slapping uh, penguins in a desert and yep. wanting an internet connection. What, what do you want in this desert? I want some penguins to slap. That's what it's all <laughs> From there, like, I guess this is a start, like you went to uni and studied ComSci. Mm-hmm. I forget what you did. Yeah, ComSci. So going through doing ComSci, what what was that like then moving into what would then become the cyber industry in terms of the uni course, self-study, the mentors that you had? I went and studied computer science at a university in Wales. And in the first year, there were... 200 people registered for our course it was around a 10 percent female ratio in there but by by the end of the first year it had the numbers had dropped down to 100 people on the course so there's a fairly high dropout rate in the first year as people transfer to other courses because it's they didn't necessarily it was a you know a real my slack I forgot to stop it and there's we have a yelling channel someone is yelling in the yelling channel you have to type in it with all caps lock (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it took me three months to no more six months at work to find out about that channel and it's my favorite one anyway that's actually I I've never seen a slack that has a yelling channel but that's actually a good idea oh I it's like I found my people it's I love it and you get to shout at people when they don't use caps lock as well what is it like virtual uh catharticism i think yes. that's the word i'm looking for yeah yeah there's been a lot of shouting this week about slack so ironically in slack <laughs> oh yes i was at university <laughs> so yeah it was a pure computer science degree so we did like the physics of transistors and things and programming in assembly i learned I think I counted once I learned 18 different programming languages when I was at uni. Some of them should never be used by anyone ever. And some of them were probably... Was, only... was one of those that should never be used JavaScript? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hate JavaScript. Oh, you see, I, yeah, JavaScript I didn't mind too much because it was very similar to a lot of the other languages we'd learned. Yeah, okay. But, um, oh, there was PHP as well and oh, yeah. uh, Java, oh, C. So did you have to do C at uni? Or was I, I, well, so I did mechatronics, so I did uh, embedded controllers. Ooh. So I spent a lot of time in C where you were also 
writing an assembly sometimes for memory. Yeah. Oh, I um, hate it. But I, I love that. Like for me, but you had like, it, you weren't programming for the sake of programming. You were programming to get an output from a controller. So that was really enjoyable. Yeah. I'd say that my memories of uni or at least of the academic work at uni the project that I still remember we had the most fun with was we would we had to write a graphics program and it Mm -hmm. would you would load a picture and then you know you had to program it so you had like the emboss buttons or the color shift buttons and because it was all done by calculations over arrays of the RGB values of every pixel in that picture we'd all sit together in the labs in the afternoon trying to figure this out and every time you got an out by one error or you got something slightly wrong in your code, you'd press your button and the picture would just turn into some random LSD mass of bright colours. <laughs> <laughs> it, became, it became like this Russian roulette of graphics programming just to see what, what it was going to be next time you press your button. So that's, that's a very fond memory of that graphics program. Whilst I was doing that degree... Ironically, the worst the worst mark I had for any of the modules during any of the degree was in networks and security, <laughs> which is doubly funny because that's the guy that taught that ended up being my PhD supervisor as well. So he was obviously a glutton for punishment. At the end of the degree, when you think about the, the split between male and female, in the end, I think there were around... 60 graduates that made it through the the whole course of that split I think there were about 10 women left on the course so there was a higher than 10 percent left by the end but also of the seven first class honours students three of them were female so there was a 50 50 split pretty much at the the top level oh I remember thinking about that at the time but not thinking too much on it I also remember at the time thinking, oh, I've probably been treated differently because I'm female, but I, I didn't really, I only saw the positives, shall we say. Um, one of my lecturers used to say, if you want to avoid being picked on in a lecture, I always pick on people who are wearing hats or who are female. I was always called on to answer the questions and I'm not sure if that extra pressure meant that the women on the course would try harder and that's why more of them ended up in uh, the higher mark category or if it I don't know did we get extra help I don't think we did but yeah maybe it was just that we were more noticeable and so when it came to you know if you were sat in the library or in the labs doing your programming people could instantly recognize you because it was fairly easy to recognize the women from your comp sci course and so you'd end up making a lot of friends and working together with a lot of people, I guess. So, I'm, like I'm assuming when you're talking about the, the first class honours students, you were one of them. And then the other two, do you know whether they're still in security now or like have moved into like digital forensics, any, like anything to do with computers? Do you keep in touch with them? Yeah, so one of them I know is uh, an academic. So last I heard she was working at Cambridge University in the UK as a graphics professor slash researcher. I reckon so my other podcast with my other co-host works there as well at Cambridge. I wonder if he knows her. They probably have run into each other through the, the halls and teaching and stuff. After I got my PhD 
from my uni, my uni supervisor left to go to Cambridge. And she was also one of his PhD students and she went with him. So I don't think back, back then security wasn't a big industry. There weren't many jobs available in security. So I think I was the only person who, at least from that cohort that, of women that went into security or a security adjacent field, should we say. From uni, you've graduated. Where did where was your pathway then? Because I, I guess this is still pre-cyber industry. There's a, there's a lot there because it was a long time ago and I didn't really do anything else. So decided that I didn't want to go out into the world and get a real job and that I should do a PhD. So stayed at the same uni. In the UK, you don't necessarily have to do a master's between an undergrad and a PhD, depending on your marks and the area of study, etc. Looked at pictures of cats and a lot of memes on the internet for four years, which is where I got my epic meme skills from. And did a PhD in network file systems, artificial intelligence, and... I don't even know. It's such a mishmash of things. I guess you could say it was all also security, but you could also say it was data mining. It was. I feel like it's, it's like most PhDs. It kind of just feels like they, they get a, a random word generator and they're like, make it, make me a, make me a PhD title. And then you, you read the actual paper and you're like, I don't know how this relates to the title. <laughs> it's pretty much let's cram all these concepts together and hope that no one else in the world has done it before because if they have, I don't get a PhD. Which for any of your listeners who are also old but know Windows history, there was a product called WinFS that was meant to be coming out in the early 2000s and that was pretty much my PhD. And so there was a big race between me and Microsoft because if they publish this project before I publish my PhD, then it became not a PhD and I'd lose everything. Lucky for me, there was, I think, Steve Barmer, or it was it was a pet project, I think, of um, Bill Gates. And then Steve Barmer took over at that time and the project died, thankfully. But I remembered releasing the press releases about WinFS and going, oh, crap, this is... This could be one of my research papers. This is literally my PhD. So, yeah, there's nothing like competing against Microsoft to give you a little bit of a productivity boost. So, yes, that was... So you published your PhD and then where was it from there? So whilst I was studying for my PhD, I was reading FHM, as you did back in the early yep. 2000s when toxic Very masculinity was all completely fine. Yeah, really um, great literature. Yeah, it was the, the journalism standards in it were fantastic. And there was an article in there where they'd interviewed a guy called Professor Neil Barrett, who was a eminent expert witness in digital forensics in the UK. So he was the expert witness on one of the Gary Glitter cases. And he had written a book called Traces of Guilt that charted how the kind of thing for his career and all the cases he'd worked on, he started in security and then went into forensics. I thought, oh, that looks interesting. So I bought his book and I read it and I was absolutely hooked. And that was the point that I realised that, wait, this is what I want to do. I've always wanted to do this job, but I thought it was only in the movies or on TV. I didn't think it really existed. 
I wrote letters to any organisation in the UK that I could find that had anything to do with digital forensics. And yes, I do actually mean actually mean hard printed hard. I yeah. Letters. I was going to ask that. Not yeah. not emails like not you wrote letters. them letters. There were some emails, but this is far enough ago in history that not everyone had an email address. Gmail wasn't even invented yet. In fact, screw Gmail. Google wasn't invented yet. So I kind of did a, a mass spamming of organisations in the UK and I got a reply back from another university that was ironically just an hour away from the one I was at saying, oh, we have a digital forensics department. Why don't you come along to our lab and hang out and meet us? And so I did. And then for one day a week, I would go to this other university and I would help them out with digital forensics research projects. So we did a project on residual data on hard disks available for resale, I think was the official title. And so we had 100 hard disks that had been bought from eBay or car boot sales or found in recycling plants or whatever. Um, and we looked at them to see what data we could get off them and what we could find out. That paper got published, in, I think, in the Journal of Information Warfare, I believe. It was very fancy, very fancy sounding journal, that one. And after we'd done that research, the people running the departments asked if I wanted to get involved in live police cases because this was back in the days before the high tech crime unit existed in the UK and local police or even national police would ask universities or other places that had the capability to do their technical work for them. Now, it was strictly forbidden for any students there to do this work because obviously you can guess what most of the material was like. But because I technically wasn't one of their students, there wasn't anything to say I couldn't work on them. So that was that was my first foray into real forensics. As a 23-year-old, I think, I was there trying to put paedophiles in jail, for want of a better word. And the really great thing about that experience was that it gave me experience and access to the proprietary and extremely expensive uh, digital forensics tools. So back then there weren't even forensic degrees or digital forensic degrees. Most university courses didn't even have a module in forensics. So then once it came time to leave university and for me to go and try and get a job, being able to say that I'd used NCASE, which at the time was the tool that everyone used to do digital yeah. forensics, gold standard back then oh yeah what made it really easy then for me to be a, a desirable employee yeah that that was really how I got my leg up into into forensics it did make it difficult to complete my PhD well let's face it PhD is difficult to complete anyway you know it it wasn't my passion it wasn't what I really enjoyed but I realised I had to complete it because I'd spent a lot of money doing it and I couldn't not complete it. And I'd spent so long doing it that I wasn't even sure who I would be if I didn't graduate. But it was doing a PhD becomes so entwined with your identity. Mm. The thought mm. of going through that experience and not 
being able to say you're a doctor at the end of it was something that I couldn't let myself do. I think like I had a similar thought and I, people are probably all have the same thought as they go through, like whatever study you do that is extended over a year, you kind of go through that thought of, do I really want to finish this? Like, is it making my life better or am I just miserable here doing this? And I mean, I think research degrees, so whether that's a master's or a PhD, are so much more difficult than other formalised learning. Like, I miss the days of just going to lectures and sitting there for an hour and being told this is what you need to know and here, go and do this coursework. It's like being spoon-fed it, right? And then you get to do a PhD and it's like, well, you've got three years until your money runs out, maybe four, and you get to decide what you're writing about. You get to set your own timetable. You set your own hours. You set your own publication schedule but it's got to be good enough. And it's also really interesting because, of course, if you're doing it full-time like I was, you're in a lab full of other PhD students. And so your view of the world and everyone else's skills and your skill level within that world becomes massively skewed because you're surrounded by all these people who are publishing theoretical mathematics PhDs and their thesis is only 20 pages long because apparently that's a good theoretical maths PhD. And there's mine that's like 400 pages long with 300 references and things like that. And all the time you're, you're trying to study and you're trying to find something new and you're trying to prove yourself. And then there's all these other people around you and you think they must be working harder than me. They must be smarter than me. Oh God, I'm the stupidest person in the room. And you forget that you're in a room with the top 0.001% of smart people (laughs) it's it's a really weird place to be in it's still it would be isolating still though like even with that realization because it's because like you said like you're you're in this microcosm of people and the environment particularly full-time so that it no matter what you would it would be isolating yeah and it's really difficult too because you know as, as i mentioned one of the things about a phd is that you have to do something that no one else in the world has done yet or you have to improve upon something that someone else has done in a way that no one else has done yet. So it's not even like you're studying something in the same field or on the same topic. Even in in our lab, you know, the people who were studying computer graphics, they were working on different things in graphics. So it wasn't like they could work together and discuss their stuff. It really was a solo journey. Yeah, and that's a really interesting concept, right? Because... Like the the only other place you can kind of think, well, there's, there's probably a few, but the immediate comparison that comes to mind in terms of solo journey is like individual sports. Like you're you're pushing yourself, but then you you're striving towards a goal that's very common. Like unless you're like trying to break a world record or something, but you're striving to a goal. You have a full support team, but then academics kind of sits in this world of professionalism but no other time in professionalism really are you working as an individual like if you're in an innovation lab for a company like you think about the big tech companies around the world like sure people come up with great innovations but they have a a full team around them that they all work together and they collaborate on ideas and they kind of share the same research and everything but uni is again very individualistic and and isolating it also depends on the, the topic because there are certainly, like there were, <laughs> within our university, there was 
a second PhD lab that in computer science that we did not go into because it was the computational fluid dynamics lab and they were all they were all weird <laughs> so their lab it was it was all due to the funding that they received so the computational fluid dynamics lab which i can't believe i've said that correctly twice in such a short time span there um, congratulations thank you they're the people that did things like modeling how to get the stripes in your toothpaste to come out stripey so they would they got massive funding from industry from for example toothpaste companies to say tell us how we have to put our toothpaste colors in the tube and design the tube for us so that when we squeeze it the stripes come out properly did you did you never wonder desi how they got stripes in toothpaste it just makes me think about this thing as a kid this paint tin that had the two colors that you mixed together but you open the lid and it was in a checkered pattern. See, and then you mix the checkered pattern. And I remember opening it and I, I probably would have been like six or seven. I was just like, how did I get that? Like that in the tin? Like when you move the tin around, doesn't the checkered pattern fuck up? But apparently not. Like, like however they've designed the tin. And and also the different, the different weights of the different pigments. Yeah. Yeah. It just stayed yeah. in this checker pattern until you like forcibly mixed it. And I was like, this is amazing computational fluid dynamics baby but because that lab was sponsored by industry there were incredible pressures on them to deliver and perform and so think they were ever allowed out of their lab we always used to joke that they were all chained to their desks but that you know again universities can be such a weird little microcosm of environments that that's two phd labs in one department of one university um, let alone all the, all the others. Makes me think of that meme of like, show me the last book that made you cry, and it's just a picture of like fluid <laughs> dynamics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> any any kind of engineer or um, yeah, like computer scientists that, that had done that can relate to um. For us, it would be when I did it. It was called the Big White Algorithm Book. And then when I was doing my PhD, they changed the color of it. And so it became the big green algorithm book. I don't know what color it is now, but there you go. Listeners, if you want to look up the big, the big something color algorithm book, that was the book that struck fear into everyone's heart as a, as a comp sci undergrads. Back to talking about your study. What, what I wanted to ask is because you, you kind of touched on there, like you were not super keen to finish your PhD, but it was kind of part of your identity at that point in your life and you wanted to finish it. What do you think was the most valuable, like not work experience, but the most valuable and pivotal piece of study you did through your career? Like, and that could be like a certification, your uni degree could be the start of your PhD and then later on, maybe not towards the end, but yeah. I am going to say it was probably when I did a... Sands course. Um, and there's, we're going to have to jump around in the timeline a little bit for this one. Yeah, that's fine. Can I make the time travel noises? Yeah. So back in 2016 <laughs> or, or thereabouts, I went and did the Sands course on network forensics. I think 574. Oh, yes. Yes, 572. I'm, good job that wasn't one of the exam questions and that was really when I got my 
there was a couple of things. It was when I started specialising more in incident response, but also it was the first time I realised that things that I'd learned in my PhD could now be useful in my career. So one of the things people have always said about me, at least to my face, is that I have an uncanny ability to find bad stuff in logs. And I do. And I I love logs. Hey, I said it. Um, <laughs> for, for the listeners, sorry. Every time in a previous job where I worked with Desi, someone said something about logs, I would have to appear on Slack and say, did somebody say logs? I love logs. Um, yes, never, never happier when, you know, trawling through an elastic stack. But um, spending all my time on my PhD doing data mining and artificial intelligence and analysis of giant volumes of logs, I'd never, then moving into forensics, I'd never been able to use those skills again, really. They were, you know, I knew a lot about computers and obviously that was very useful. But it was only then when I went to do 572 slash 4, maybe I did 573, we'll just invent a new course, that I was able to use the parts of my brain that I'd spent so long at university building in my actual day job that I cared about. So, man, that was a hard course, though. But it also re-inspired my love for I was I was getting a little bit of bored bored's the wrong word but you know there's only so much corporate espionage corporate that's not a word sorry Leo can you say it for me please Desi corporate espionage thank you there's only so much of that or cheating spouses that you can investigate on you know doing what we would refer to now as DevOps forensics And yes, I did find that work very rewarding and it was fun and I love puzzles and I love finding things out and reading people's emails, etc. But I was, I needed something a little bit more interesting to keep me going. And to be honest, I had had enough of dealing with lawyers as well. Being able to do, to learn about the, the network forensics and then suddenly it's like the neurons in my brain reconnected and was like, no, wait, you can do the really cool job that you've always wanted to do that forensics didn't kind of end up being. And that was, so yeah, 2016-ish was when I really started to move more into incident response. That's really cool. Like it sounds like through, you kind of like kept getting closer and closer to the job that you wanted to do. And it was like, I, I guess it gets more and more niche as as we all keep going in cyber careers and you develop more skills. I don't know. So I guess some people would argue that classically when you work in a technical field and you work in consulting, that you get less and less niche because you end up being more sales and more managementy. But I think that's changing now. I think, I think a lot of places are recognizing that you can't have non-technical people leading technical parts of the business because they either don't know what they're talking about or the people who are very smart and very technical underneath them will realize that they don't know what they're talking about and will feel disenfranchised when working for that organization. So I find there's more senior non-management technical positions these days as well. Absolutely. Which is good because you always had that where you can't go above 
you can't go above a certain level because then you've got to do sales and people management and yes. less technical stuff. It's like, no, yeah. don't let people spend years getting really, really good at this technical stuff and then tell them they have to do something else. Yeah. It's not going to yeah. make them happy. It's not going to make anyone happy. Yeah. Yeah. And it like, it's especially not going to make anyone happy in that they're probably not going to be good people managers and it's not going to make their subordinates happy because they're just not going to care about managing people. And and some people are really good at managing people and, and some just could develop the skill, but they just don't care. Like they're more interested in technical stuff. Yeah, some people wouldn't leave offensive memes in their team members' reports when they made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, Joe. <laughs> it showed I cared. <laughs> now, it? You have to, now you have to explain that story. So one of the first reports that I did for Joe, the only response or the, the first, not the only response, she did do a good job at giving me more feedback, but the re- response that I immediately got back was a meme of this old Godzilla movie where the prop is like sideways in a cart. And I always, I always forget the exact wording, but it was something like Godzilla had a stroke reading this and fucking died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That, that was that's our tagline for LinkedIn. <laughs> Godzilla had a stroke listening to this and fucking died. Yes, I'm, I'm a bit worried that, about Leo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's. Do you want to time travel back and talk about? So you've you're doing your PhD. You, you're still still doing. It, you're working for this other university, doing live police cases. What was next? My PhD supervisor saying. If you don't submit your thesis by February, you're going to have to withdraw and you won't get a PhD. And also my funding running out and needing to get a job. So, yeah, you know, two, two kind of definitive things that meant I had to take action. So I did go and get a job and I got my first job straight in digital forensics, working for a big four in London. And at the time that particular department was the it was called a center of excellence which is big four speak saying this is where we've got all the people who know how to do this stuff and we covered the whole of Europe so it was it was a fun exciting time you know living in London is fun and exciting times anyway or at least it was in in the early 2000s and you know I felt very adult going into the office every day just in the pretty much in the square mile of London and having to wear a suit and oh my goodness the dress codes you would never get away with having these dress codes now well actually I'm not sure if it's a UK thing because certainly I've never experienced this in Australia but we're we're way more casual yeah it was only so we were we were never allowed short sleeve shirts men were not allowed to wear short sleeve shirts ever everyone all the guys had to wear a suit and tie you weren't allowed not to wear a tie I think it was only two or three years before one of the other consulting companies had permitted their female staff to wear trousers, a trouser suit instead of a skirt or dress suit. So yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an exciting time. And because we were the centre of excellence for Europe, I would go to work in the morning with my passport and a spare pair of pants in my bag. Pants being the underwear, by the way, not the 
trousers, crazy Australian words. And sometimes I would walk into the office and the office, the team assistant would say, Joe, you're going to Germany, car's waiting for you downstairs to take you to the airport, grab your bags, we'll see you tomorrow. And off I'd go. And, you know, that was all very fun and exciting, you know, being driven around in Mercedes to the airport, going in the business lounge, flying business and staying in fancy schmancy hotels. But after a while, it got pretty boring and miserable. <laughs> Certainly for me, there was a a feeling of over decadence almost. It was like the the hours when you were working overseas, the hours were very long. So some days I would leave my hotel at 6am and I wouldn't get back till after 10pm, at which point everything that you could get, everywhere you could get food from was shut. And so I'd have dinner from the minibar, which was always a Toblerone. Or you'd have to order room service because that was the only place you could get food from. Who wouldn't want to, you know, be in a fancy hotel ordering room service? But when you're there on your own, you don't get to see your friends, you don't get to see your family. It's pretty miserable. And for me, after a while, it felt everything being so nice and luxurious just rubbed in more how I couldn't enjoy it. I wasn't there with anyone fun. I was there on my own most of the time. And I really missed that social connection as well with people and especially yeah when you when you get sent somewhere and you're there for six weeks and then you get to come home for one weekend and then you go back for another six weeks it's it's very hard not to burn out at that point we had people on our team thankfully I wasn't one of them but we had to bring them home from overseas assignments because their corporate credit cards were maxed out and they had to come home so they could submit all their expenses, which, of course, back in the day had to be done hard copy, not over email. So they could get their corporate credit card bill paid and so they could afford to be sent back out. To... I mean, that seems ridiculous now, right? People getting to come back to the country because their corporate credit card was maxed out. It's ridiculous. Um, and people on the team used to say, oh, you know, it's OK. It's easy for you. You don't have family you know, you don't have a husband or wife, you don't have kids, so you don't miss them. But I increasingly started to feel like I would never get a husband or even a boyfriend because I had no chance. It was just work, work, work. I remember one night I just got back from an unexpected trip to Europe and my friends were having a birthday party and it was a Friday night and it was one o'clock in the morning. I was in the car from the airport and I called them to say I wouldn't be able to make it. And they're like, I'll oh, just get your driver to come and drop you off here. And I was just normally back in uni days, I would have said, sure, hooray. But I was just, I was tired and cranky and I just wanted my own bed. And I'd had as much free alcohol that I could want for the last two weeks anyway, and I didn't want it. So yeah, I was not in a partying mood. And it seems like it was probably pretty close from doing a PhD, which is isolating in a way, to then into this job, which sounds very isolating, traveling so much. And I can definitely relate to like, when I first joined the military, like I, I moved down to Adelaide, so I was away from family and friends already. But then I was sent on so many initial training courses and like had joined cyber. So there was so much cyber training to do. And I think like I was renting this house in the city, like a really nice spot that 
I picked and I was going to really enjoy walking around the city and getting to know Adelaide and trying to make some friends who were locals. But I had calculated, I was out of the state about 80 to 85% of the year, just on courses and travel. And, and again, everyone's like, oh, that must be so amazing. Like you, like, and I did love parts of it. I got to see quite a lot of Australia that way. But then at the same time, like you can never, you're always on a course so you make friends on the course and then you leave or you can't make friends with locals because you're so busy that you can't get off base or, and then you come home and you want to just spend a week by yourself because you've literally been living in the pockets of like 20 other people that you don't get, have a chance to get away from all the time. And it's that same thing. They're like, Oh, you're lucky. Like you don't have family a partner and that kind of thing. And you're like, how am I ever going to meet a partner that's happy with me being away so much? And I felt for the for the people that did have family and kids, you know, they were lucky that when they came home on a Friday night, they had family and kids. Yeah. And they had family and kids to spend the weekend with. I mean, my my parents only lived an hour and a half out of London, but I didn't get home as much as I wanted to to be able to see them either because, you know, Yes, I could potentially go home, but then I might get a phone call saying, hey, we need you to go somewhere. It's one, you know, the dubious thing about working in forensics slash incident response of the whole bleed of hours, that you're not on call, but if we get a client who needs your help, you're going to have to cancel whatever plans you were doing and go. Yeah, so then I guess that helps the decision to move out of, well, help, one of the points that helped move out of that role into something else? Well, the massive decision there was that I moved to Australia. So <laughs> that made it easier. Yeah, when I, when I came to Australia, I first worked for a smaller organisation, still doing digital forensics, but not in a professional services consultancy. It was in an insolvency firm. And so... I actually, I really enjoyed the cases that I got to work on at first because when I'd been in the UK and Europe, all the cases I'd worked on were massive corporate investigations where I didn't actually get to get involved in the investigations all the time because that would be taken care of by the forensic accountants, etc. So, oh, I think I forgot to mention, but previously I think we talked about that One of the cases I worked on when I was in London was the FCPA case against Siemens, which is Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's a US law that applies to all organisations that do business in the US, including those that list on the US Stock Exchange. So back at the time, this was the largest case in the world, at least for the first time that FCPA had been used in anger, because Siemens were eventually found to have been making facilitation payments to small nation countries for erection of their telecoms towers. And although that was supposedly the okay way to do business in those countries, not if you are listed on the US Stock Exchange. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time over there in their facilities that were so big, they had tunnels underneath them. I worked it out once for comparison for the Australian listeners. This one office complex was the size of 18 Marvel stadiums in Melbourne uh, put together. And so to get from one 
building to the next, you could go down into the tunnels underneath and they ran like a massive grid and people would have their bicycles down there so they could cycle in between the buildings. It was really, it was like some kind of, it was almost like a um, portal. It was almost like being in a portal when you were going down into the bunkers and there was that eerie electrics noise. Um, unfortunately, no portal guns. But anyway, that was a digression. I've completely forgotten what you were asking. Uh, so you, you moved to Australia. You went to the small uh, firm. Yeah. So yeah, interest, uh, interesting investigations. Because they were a smaller firm, they took on a lot more what I would say personal cases being, I think my husband's cheating, you know, can you look at his computer, etc. So yeah, the the variety of the cases I got to work on increased. But at the same time, I was getting frustrated at, I guess, it's a really difficult thing to describe, but at the time, there were a lot of people, especially in Melbourne, leaving AFP or the other high-tech crimes units in, in Australian law enforcement. They had skills in investigating the things you would expect them to spend a lot of time investigating. So finding pictures on people's laptops and things. Um, and I had more experience in corporate, so going into a corporate network and knowing about Active Directory servers and knowing how to get files off printers and things like that. But that wasn't the work that I was getting to do. And it was it was a weird time in the industry too. There was electronic discovery was the new big thing. And everyone who wanted to employ me, they'd always ask in any interview, so have you done electronic discovery? And I'm like, yes, I have. Oh, and so would you be able to do that again? And I'm like, I I have no desire to do electronic discovery. Electronic discovery was like the exact polar opposite for what I liked about doing forensic. You know, it took all the investigation fun and joy and discovery and technical work for what I used to refer to as the sausage machine. So back in those days, ED software, you would plunk all your documents into it Crank, crank the handle and hope it came out the other end, a metaphorical handle, not so old that we had mechanical electronic discovery. Um, and sometimes it wouldn't work. You know, the OCR would fail, something would fail. And the, the way that you got around that was always just take the files that failed and try putting them through again. You know, we used to call it smash it through, just smash it through. And you try this three or four times because the software was so janky and it was a frustrating experience as a forensic investigator just going oh here are some files that failed I know I'll kick off another automated process to try and get them this time and from a forensic background going I can't leave all not all these files processed because what happens if this one that I can't get is actually one that you know is open and then of course you have the lawyers who are looking at the results of the electronic discovery and going oh, well, I want to know about this file and I want to know about this file and why isn't this file working and what, well, yeah. TLDR, I hate electronic discovery. Sorry for anyone listening who does that. You do a vital job for the industry, so I don't have to. Thank you for your service. It has got better if, again, you can use the tools and 
write scripts to go with it and, and everything. And it's probably a lot more like if you're at that level of doing a discovery, I think like I've, I've seen Matt Westwood Hill do it before and like with his scripts and that's really fun to like get into and do. So it's definitely better now, but yeah, I, I like just running the tool is frustrating. Like even now OCR still breaks. It's also so time consuming too. It's like, Oh, we need to do a new discovery of this file server. So can you extract all the files out? It's like, well, yeah, I can, but it's not really a great use of my time and brain power. <laughs> yeah, did not enjoy that. So at, at that time, I decided oh, I should I should go and do something else for a little bit, and I decided to go and work as a pen tester, thinking that my skills in forensics and my PhD would have me in good stead to be an uberlite hacker. Um, dear reader, I was wrong should be dear listeners dear listeners i was wrong they are not the same and it was a difficult time for a couple of years whilst i relearned everything pretty much um and learned how to be a web app pen tester mostly some infrastructure mostly web apps mobile apps and uh, i think i i worked in that field for around three to four years and yeah, once again, still working in consulting, large consulting firms, becoming more and more jaded with the big four model, the whole pyramid scheme. The I was just about to say that the whole yeah. the whole pyramid oh, scheme. Your, your partner four. material, Joe. Yes, yes, I know. So why don't you pay me like I am? Oh, but you're not ready for promotion yet because. Even though you've done all the things we've told you you needed to do for promotion, it turns out we've changed our minds and we don't want to promote you. So, sorry, we've moved the goalposts. And, and oh, hello, very technical team. We want to take all of your technical stuff and actually we want you to work on other things instead because the client wants to pay us money for them. So we don't care about what you can do or what you want to do. We want you to go and do a PCI DSS assessment for this client. Yes, I I did that for a few years and then went to work for a boutique security company, which was horrendous fun for that was like a six month contract just because they had a need to fill a six month contract. Yeah. And then had kids or at least had a kid at that point. And after, after that decided that I didn't really, you know, security was fun. And I was good at it by that point, but it didn't really excite me in quite the same way as forensics and investigations did. So I decided that's where I wanted to go back to and was lucky enough to, to find a role, um, went back into security and this brings us, sorry, back into forensics. And this brings us back to the previous digression we had of 2016 where I did the SANS Network Forensics course and then started to get into incident response. Quite a journey and it kind of answers it answers the next question. And for this for the sake of time, I am gonna skip skip some questions. Oh, you might have skipped some good ones. Why don't you ask them for me and I'll see if I can give the answers in less than ten words. Or oh, okay, you're gonna have to, because I've got twenty five minutes left that I can actually record for. So if you could go back and talk to your pre cyber self, do you have anything you could say to them that you think would help? Don't take any shit. Haha, <laughs> four words. What areas of cyber do you think you've been part of? Digital forensics, incident response, security consulting. 
pen testing. Other than meeting me, what's been a highlight of your career so far? Oh, everything else pales in comparison. <laughs> I know, right? I'm sure I had a good answer for this last time and I've completely forgotten what it was. Oh, I guess in 2018, I was part of Team Victoria, which was just the amalgamation of, oh, this is more than 10 words, sorry, of a few different organisations when the Barwon Health ransomware attack happened. And so being part of the team that got to go and, and help out with the incident response there was really great fun, made a lot of friends in other organisations and the government and yeah, it was nice to be able to go and help. I think it wasn't just your career we were talking about, but you got to meet the now king. Oh yeah, that one. Oh, I thought we'd gotten away with it. Yeah, that wasn't a really a highlight of my cyber career. Yes, I did have lunch at Prince Charles's house at the time. He was Prince Charles. I got to meet him and have lunch at his house and that was nice. For the listeners' context a little bit, is Joe won an award and was part of a, a cohort that got to go and have lunch with with the prince, now King of England. I was I was the first woman to win the award ever. You know, I'm a I'm a security computer science unicorn. And yeah. That was that was one of the bonuses of it. I think so this this question has changed into a highlight, I, th I think, before I had it worded differently. So we were talking about all the, like, interesting things that had happened throughout study and, and career and everything. But the Victoria one sounds really cool. Getting to work on a big case that's multi-organisational, which is really fun to be a part yeah, of. Yeah, and it was there – were, there were many memes being created. <laughs> I've come to recognise it's my way of, of dealing with, with stress. But the – I've always told teams when I've led them – you know, incident response is stressful. Forensics is stressful. And working with lawyers and working for clients is stressful. And people get upset and angry. And I always try and protect my team from the stress by saying, it's okay, we're not in the business of saving lives. Because most of the time, what we do, we're helping people who have got a problem and stopping them, it costing them a lot of money or stopping it costing them more money or losing their business, etc. But for that Team Victoria one in particular, it was... I was in a hospital and there were doctors running around, literally going, if you don't get this sorted soon, someone's going to die. <laughs> it was like, okay, great, great, thanks. So we are actually in the business of saving lives this time. And there was one, there was one particularly funny thing I remember where there was one machine somewhere on the network that was still pinging out to a cobalt stripe beacon. And so... We, we couldn't connect to it remotely, but we'd identified it was somewhere in the cardiology department and it was probably connected to some machine that did something. And we had to go down to the cardiology department and run around trying to find <laughs> this, this computer. And that's where we came across the doctors telling us people were going to die. <laughs> How have you spent your day? Well, I was running around a cardiology department trying to find a cobalt strike beacon. Ah, <laughs> oh, so so unique. Yeah, yeah so unique. special. You, you so you you can't have experiences like that in normal jobs, right? Another, you can do multiple ten words or less. But passion projects at the moment, cyber or otherwise. I am making some blankets, patchwork. That's right, patchwork quilts. Yep. And so I now have two children, and during the horrendous lockdowns we had in Melbourne, I finally got around to getting all the baby clothes they'd worn, cutting them up into hundreds of small pieces and making giant patchwork quilts out of them. 
So that's what I've been doing. It was recently my birthday, so I, I got a lot of nice things, mostly arts and craft supplies. So I'm doing a painting by numbers at the moment that I started doing last week. And it's like being a kid again, where you're trying to color in and you keep going over the lines and you get so frustrated with yourself going, why are my hands so stupid? I can't color in between the lines. I tried to write something the other day and it was illegible. I, I actually can't handwrite any. I, I'm like, I actually have to practice this. Anytime I have to write something or put my initials, it's on a screen now anyway. With my Ah, oh, yeah. No, I was trying to use a pen. I couldn't hold it properly. I was, yeah, out of practice. Yep. And because I know you will want me to answer this question in this way, I have just finished building my paludarium, which is a cross between a vivarium and an aquarium. So imagine a fish tank, but only about a third of it is underwater and a third of it is like a giant garden that grows out the top of the tank. So I've made a temperate rainforest and it causes much hilarity in our house because I have some rain spray things that come on twice a day at 9.37 on the dot. And so anytime these sprays come on, everyone in the house stops what they're doing, including my kids, and goes, it's 9.37. <laughs> Weirdly, the timer on this thing, you know, being a cheap Chinese piece of electronics, it doesn't have a clock in it. So it just knows 12 hours or however often you want it to set. Yeah. So it used to be 8.37 and then our clock's changed and now it's 9.37. <laughs> so... Nice. That's really cool. Uh, goals for the next six to 12 months. I think this is a hard one for everyone because everyone's, especially end of the year, so busy. So like, it's kind of hard to think. And Yeah. So I, professionally, I guess I want to keep developing the team. We've got some cool projects coming up, building things. And not only is building things fun, but it also obviously enhances the service and gives people the opportunity to work on more interesting things. So one of the things we're looking at setting up is the threat hunting capability, rolling out Velociraptor everywhere. That's going to be fun. It's going to be more rocks to pick up and problems to solve that we didn't know we had. It's always fun. The 4.30 Friday afternoon specials. And let's see. At home, I haven't been doing much running recently. I used to run a lot. I haven't really had time slash energy to do that and I'd really like to get back into that over the summer and I'd like to have more outside adventures with my kids so when they get home shortly we are heading out to a state park to do some hiking that'd be really cool this is good we're moving through them when you were five what did you want to be funeral director cool or marine biologist or flight attendant okay so i'm assuming flight attendant for the travel yeah i thought it looked glamorous marine biologist for working with animals swimming animals fish yep funeral director for the dead bodies i like wearing black (laughs) i wanted to be the person that walked at the front of the in front of the hearse with the big fancy black hat on i didn't realize that you know you had to do things with dead bodies other than just walking in front of them so so we've probably touched on this a little bit but what do you do to unwind from work Uh, like i we've spoken about this before where you like you try and finish on time all the time now because we when we work together that was never the case this year i've become a lot stricter with my own personal time 
And so I stop work at five. Sometimes if I'm working on, you know, I'm getting a little bit more lax on that. But um, so I try and stop work at five and then I can spend more time with my kids in the evening. I have also recently realised that I, I am quite a gamer. It would be fair to say over the, over the years, I, I've somewhat dabbled in computer games. Yeah, and definitely, definitely not competitive that was so competitive that made me not want to play a oh, game. Look, again. can we just skate over that first? Can I can I say my endearing and skillful part first and then we'll touch on the okay, that I okay. I feel like the listeners already know what type of person you are though. What? Mean to me is the type. Oh with love. <laughs> I'm not mean to just anyone, you know. Um, so I think last time we tried recording, I was potentially, I just started to play Pikmin 4, maybe. Uh, no. no, no. Oh man, well, I, right, I, was, I was having trouble justifying spending $80 on Pikmin 4, but it turned out that it was about $1 per hour of the game. So, <laughs> because, you know, when I play Pikmin 4, I'm not just playing it to 100% completion, I'm playing it to 100% completion with zero death. So it took me 80 hours to get everything done. It's a self-imposed goal. I've got the screenshot showing that I completed it 100% and nothing died. Well, except for what I did. But yeah. And then, you know, after I've played a game like that for a little while, I'm like, right, I need I need some time off because it becomes like an obsession. And then for my birthday, I bought myself We Love Katamari, <laughs> which I have said I've played other Katamari games and I didn't really like the re-roll they did of the first one on the Switch but I think We Love Katamari and Royal Reverie is perhaps the best Katamari game ever and I am once again into must complete all levels (laughs) collect all items and actually I had a lovely it's just there's just so many fun things in it to find like there was there's a school level, a Japanese school level, and you can roll into the toilets and some of the toilets have got people in them, which is quite funny. But there's one toilet and a ghost pops up out of it, like Harry Potter. And so I was telling that to my husband, who is not a gamer, and he just looked at me and went, And did you roll it up? <laughs> and I'm like, Of course I did. <laughs> he he likes computer games about as much as I like golf. But, you know, we, we tolerate each other's interests for the sake of a harmonious marriage. Yeah, that's what makes a great relationship, right? Tolerance of each other's quirks. And so Katamari, for him, has always been, he's like, I don't understand why you'd like that game. All you're doing is rolling around and rolling things up. Like, he didn't understand Terraria either. It's like, what are you doing? I'm digging. And when I was playing The Witcher, he would just sit on the sofa and go, hmm, fancy a game of Gwent. Because, of course... I got completely sucked into the Gwent black hole, black hole and had to get all the cards and beat everyone in every Gwent match ever. And, yeah. So my when I told my friends at work that I'd managed to do that 100% Pikmin playthrough, they reckon, they uh, recommended for a challenge next time I do the Elden Ring, but using a steering wheel and pedals controller instead of the normal one for an actual challenge. <laughs> and then when they said that, I thought of you, and your crabs. Yeah, you had to fight the giant crab in Elden Ring. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, in the swamp. the wor- One of the worst enemies to fight. Aren't they all bad? Yeah, there, there's particular ones that just have, like, really weird attack patterns that it's 
Like, they're just hard to get used to, and the crabs are one of them. So the main storyline is actually not too bad to get through to finish the game, and it's all, like, you can get used to the patterns, but it's, like, in the wild, they're just like, all right, let's really just mess people up and have these really weird attack patterns, and those crabs are one of them. Like, you're just adventuring through the swamp, and then all of a sudden there's, like, three crabs, and they're all huge and hard to beat, and yeah. All right, we've made it to the end. Last question before we finish. What recommendations would you have for people who are currently outside the industry considering a change into it? Security is a really big field. There are lots of different things you can do in security. And as someone who is actively recruiting in this area at the moment, it's very easy when you look through applications to spot who is passionate about it and who wants to learn. It doesn't matter what field of security you work in, you have to keep learning. It's unfortunately not a career where you can go, right, I've got this certification, I've got my degree, I know everything there is to know about computers and security now. Things change all the time, you have to keep learning, and if you don't want to do that and don't want to put in the effort to do that, it's probably not going to be a rewarding career for you. So that's why the advice I'd give was find what you really love, because when you when you really love doing something, it, it you don't mind having to make extra effort to do it. And there will be extra effort required somewhere, right? We can't all work nine to five every day and expect to reach dazzling heights. There's only so many hours we have in the day and you have to find the best use for them, right? So working out, is it pen testing? And specifically, is it web app? Is it sec DevOps? Is it SecOps? Is it engineering? Is it cloud? If it's cloud, is it one particular flavor of cloud that you like? Or could you do all the clouds? Is it forensics is it investigations is it red teaming is it blue teaming purple teaming is it sales is it grc hope not we'd love to everyone that does grc um i'm i'm so grc listeners i am trying to get more grc people on because we do riff on you a lot but we love you you do the work that we don't want to yeah and actually i do there's one particular grc person i'm on a um a couple of conference review boards and organizations with them and I'm always mocking for talking about GRC. <laughs> ask, ask them if they would like to come I on the podcast. I will. I will indeed. I'm sure they would love to. They are very, very funny. So, yeah. So, really, it's working out what you want to do. And I think then this make an effort is the other thing. Like, it doesn't have to be in terms of hours spent or boxes cracked or whatever. But like back at the beginning of my story, when I decided I wanted to do forensics and I started getting in contact with people and saying, hey, this is what I want to do. Can you help? Or what can I do to make you want to help? And I think that would still be true today. A lot of people say, oh, I want to get into security. Will you mentor me? Blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people seem to mistake having a mentor as being they're going to tell me how to do everything. And I don't have to make any effort and that's not how it works. So finding people who do want to make the effort, who do want to put that work in themselves, makes it much easier to help and encourage and guide that person. I can definitely agree with that from the mentees that I've helped. It's literally the difference between mentoring and coaching. Like don't come to someone and expect them to coach you into it. Come to them with questions with, hey, I've been researching this. Can you tell me where to look next? Yeah, or can you, I didn't understand this. Can you explain it more? Or can you give me an example of where it might have happened? Or, yeah. 
because we get really excited doing that when people are like people have made effort and they're like where do i go to next and then i'm like oh well you've got all these things that you can look at and i love when then people go and look at not all of them but at least some of them and come back and go oh i learned this and that's for me that's satisfying because it's like i can see there's motivation there and that they've put effort in and they've learned something new which is fun i had someone at work this week from a different department reaching out to me saying hey I really wanted to give my team who work on a a help desk some additional training in how to spot phishing emails. That's like the easiest kind of work we do. But the fact that they've gone, hey, I think I would like my team to know more about this. Can you help us? It's like, yes, yes. I love talking about email headers and, (laughs) you know, how to spot phishers, et cetera, even though it's not that difficult. And also in doing that, it takes the pressure off my team because their team can deal with more of those queries. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it was, you know, so nice that someone someone who led a team had identified that was an area for improvement for them and had asked for help with it. It wasn't a, hey, Joe, what could we do to make my team better? It was a specific request that I could help with. Well... Joe, thanks so much for giving up some of your time on your weekend to jump on the podcast and chat through your career path. And hopefully some of the listeners got something out of it. I'm sure they did. I hope someone did. It's up in the air. We'll see, we'll see how much this episode is listened to, noting that it's at an hour and a half. <laughs> well, yeah, I make no, no promises. And if Leo is still employable after this experience. <laughs> Yeah, or just had a mental breakdown and decided that he doesn't want to do cyber. Yeah, that's it. He's going to GRC. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's definitely off that. They People recommended it to him. He was like, nah, I want to be technical. <laughs> Thanks so much. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me again. So nearly all of the content will be free, but if you want to support, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like and subscribe to my YouTube channel, or you can also check out my merch from my website, hardlyadequate.com and where you can also get all the links for all of my content. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you all later on.